Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the Temple of Artemis, a famous duel in the Wild West, and a unique murder in 1943. The events took place on July 21st and July 23rd. July 21st, 356 BC. The Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, is destroyed by fire. The Temple of Artemis, also known as the Temple of Diana, was a Greek temple dedicated to an ancient, local form of the goddess Artemis. In Greek mythology and religion, Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, nature, vegetation, childbirth, care of children, and chastity. She was heavily identified with the moon and regarded as one of the most prominent lunar deities in mythology. She would often roam the forests of Greece, attended by her large entourage, mostly made up of nymphs, mortals, and hunters. In Greek tradition, Artemis is the daughter of the sky god and king of gods Zeus and Leto, and the twin sister of Apollo. The countryside goddess Diana is her Roman equivalent. The Temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus, present-day Turkey. The sacred site was far older than the temple itself. Pausanias, a Greek traveler and geographer from the 2nd century, was certain that it came before the Ionic immigration by many years. He said that the pre-Ionic inhabitants of the city were Aboriginal people and Lydians. Callimachus, an ancient Greek poet and scholar, attributed the earliest inhabitants at Ephesus to the Amazons, legendary warrior women whose religious practice may have centered upon an image of Artemis, their matron goddess. Pausanias believed that the temple predated the Amazons. Excavations confirmed that the site was occupied as early as the Bronze Age, which was between 3300 BC and 1200 BC. In the 7th century BC, a flood destroyed the temple, depositing over half a meter of sand and debris over the original clay floor. A new temple was sponsored at least in part by Croesus, who founded Lydia's empire and was overlord of Ephesus. It was designed and constructed around 550 BC. The temple was 375 feet long and 150 feet wide, and was the first Greek temple built of marble. Its perpetual columns stood 40 feet high in double rows that formed a wide ceremonial passage around the inner chamber that housed the goddess's cult image. Thirty-six of these columns were decorated by carvings and a new ebony or blackened grapewood cult statue was sculpted. The temple became an important attraction visited by merchants, kings, and sightseers, many of whom paid homage to Artemis in the form of jewelry and various goods. It also offered sanctuary to those fleeing persecution or punishment, a tradition linked in myth to the Amazons who twice fled there seeking the goddess's protection. In 356 BC, the temple burned down. Various sources describe this as a vainglorious act of arson by a manned Herostratus, who set fire to the wooden roof beams, seeking fame at any cost. This act coined the term herostratic fame to describe people who commit crimes for notoriety. 
Herostratus was sentenced to death and was forbidden to say his name. The temple fire was described by Aristotle, but the cause was not mentioned. In Greek and Roman historical tradition, the temple's destruction coincided with the birth of Alexander the Great, and says that Artemis was too preoccupied with Alexander's delivery to save her burning temple. But again, the cause is not listed in Greek and Roman historical text. Herostratus' part in the temple's destruction has been questioned in modern scholarship. It has been noted that any arsonist would have needed to access the wooden roof framing and that the temple was protected by guards and custodians. The fire might have even been deliberately and covertly set by the temple's administrators, aware that the temple's foundation was sinking, but prevented from relocating the temple due to religious constraints. The original sacred location has been conserved throughout successive rebuildings, despite continued problems with flooding and the foundation. The motive of Herostratus has also been questioned since he only divulged his reason for setting the fire under torture, which does not fit a man seeking fame. Alexander offered to pay for the temple's rebuilding, but the Ephesians politely refused, saying it would be improper for one god to build a temple for another. They eventually rebuilt it after his death at their own expense. Work started in 323 BC and continued for many years. The third temple was larger than the second, at 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high, with more than 127 columns. Literary sources describe the temple decorated by paintings, columns gilded with gold and silver, and religious works from renowned Greek sculptors. This reconstruction survived 600 years and appears multiple times in early Christian accounts of Ephesus. In 268 AD, a raid by the Goths laid waste to many populous cities and set fire to the renowned Temple of Diana at Ephesus. The temple may have been derelict until its official closure during the persecution of pagans in the late Roman Empire. After closure and after the city had become Christian, the name of Artemis appears to have been erased from the inscriptions throughout Ephesus. Some of the stone from the abandoned temple was used in construction of other buildings. Cyril of Alexandria credited the Archbishop of Constantinople with destroying the temple, referring to him as the destroyer of the demons and overthrower of the Temple of Diana. A later Archbishop of Constantinople noted the achievements of the earlier Archbishop, saying, In Ephesus, he despoiled the art of Midas. However, there is little evidence to support this claim. After six years of searching, the site of the temple was rediscovered in 1869 by an expedition led by John Turtle Wood and sponsored by the British Museum. These excavations continued until 1874. The recovered sculptured fragments of the 4th century rebuilding and a few fragments from the earlier temple which had been found in the rubble were assembled and displayed in the Ephesus room of the British Museum. In addition, the museum has part of what may be the oldest pot hoard of coins in the entire world, from 600 BC, that had been buried in the foundation of the archaic temple. Today the site of the temple is marked by a single column, constructed of fragments discovered at the site. Here's my take on the Temple of Artemis. It's kind of boring. I'm sorry.
I mean, to be one of the seven wonders of the world, you'd expect a little bit more. Hellenistic history is pretty cool, though. July 21st, 1865. In the Market Square of Springfield, Missouri, Wild Bill Hickok shoots and kills Davis Tutt in what is regarded as the first Western showdown. The shootout is one of the few recorded instances in the Old West of a one-on-one quick-draw pistol duel in a public place, in the manner later made iconic by countless dime novels and Western films. The first story of the shootout was detailed in an article in Harper's Magazine in 1867, making Hickok a household name and folk hero. Tut and Hickok were both gamblers and had been friends at one point, despite the fact that Tut was a Confederate Army veteran and Hickok had been a scout for the Union Army. Davis Tut originally came from Marion County, Arkansas, where his family had been involved in the Tut-Everett War, during which several of his family members had been killed. He went north to Missouri following the Civil War. Wild Bill was born in Illinois, coming west after mistakenly thinking he had killed a man in a drunken brawl. The eventual falling out between Hickok and Tut reportedly occurred over women. There were reports that Wild Bill had fathered an illegitimate child with Tut's sister, while Tut had been observed paying a great deal of attention to Wild Bill's girlfriend, Susanna Moore. Hickok started refusing to play in any card game that included Tut so the cowboy retaliated by openly supporting other card players with advice and money in a dedicated attempt to clean out Wild Bill. The simmering conflict eventually came to a head during a game of poker at the Lion House Hotel, now called the Old Southern Hotel. Hickok was playing against several other local gamblers while Tut stood nearby, loaning money as needed and coaching them on how to beat Wild Bill. The game was being played for high stakes and Hickok had done well winning about $200, which is roughly $3,500 today, and he was taking what was essentially Tut's money. Irritated by his losses and unwilling to admit defeat, Tut reminded Wild Bill of a $40 debt from a past horse trade. Hickok shrugged and paid the sum, but Tut was unappeased. He then claimed that Hickok owed him an additional $35 from a poker game. Wild Bill responded, I think you are wrong, Dave. It's only $25. I have a memorandum in my pocket. Tut had a large following at the Lion House. Encouraged by these armed associates, he tried to humiliate his enemy. In the midst of their argument over the $10 difference in the debt, and while Hickok was paying attention to poker, Tut grabbed one of Wild Bill's most prized possessions off the table, his gold pocket watch, and announced that he would keep the watch as collateral until Hickok paid the full $35. Wild Bill was shocked and livid, but being outnumbered and outgunned, he was unwilling to resort to violence at the time. He quietly demanded that Tut put the watch back on the table. Tut grinned back at him and left the premises with the watch. Aside from publicly humiliating Hickok and taking his property, Tut's demand for collateral on a debt from a fellow professional card player implied that he thought Wild Bill was an insolvent gambler trying to avoid his debts. To ignore such an insult from Tut would have ruined Hickok's career as a gambler in Springfield, 
which was reportedly his only source of income. In addition to that, groups of Tut's friends continued to mock Wild Bill after the initial confrontation, baiting him with talk of the pocket watch to see if he might draw his pistol in anger, which would result in him being shot down by the entire group. After several days of this, Hickok's patience was at its breaking point. When a group of Tut's supporters at the Lion House mocked him and announced that they heard Tut was planning to wear the watch in the middle of the town square the next day, Wild Bill replied, He shouldn't come across that square unless dead men can walk. Having made up his mind, Wild Bill returned to his room to clean, oil, and reload his pistols in anticipation of a confrontation with Tut the next morning. Although Tut had humiliated his rival, Hickok's ultimatum essentially forced his hand. To go back on his very public boast would make everyone think he was afraid of Wild Bill. So as long as he intended to stay in Springfield, Tut could not afford to show cowardice. The next day he arrived at the town square around 10 a.m. with Wild Bill's watch openly hanging from his waist pocket. The word quickly spread that Tut was making good on his pledge to humiliate Wild Bill who became aware within an hour. According to the testimony of three witnesses, Hickok met Tut at the square and discussed terms on the watch's return. Tut now demanded $45 instead of $35. A man named Eli Armstrong tried to convince Tut to accept the original $35 and negotiate for the rest later, but Hickok was still adamant that he only owed $25. Tut then held the watch in front of Hickok and stated that he would accept no less than $45. Both then said they did not want to fight, and they went for a drink together. Tut soon left, however, returning once again to the square, still wearing the watch. Just before 6 p.m., Wild Bill was seen calmly approaching the square from the south, armed with his Colt Navy pistol. His presence caused the crowd to immediately scatter, to the safety of nearby buildings, leaving Tut alone in the northwestern corner of the square. At a distance of about 75 yards, Hickok stopped, facing Tut, and called out, Dave, here I am. He cocked his pistol, holstered it on his hip, and gave a final warning. Don't you come across here with that watch. Tut did not reply, but stood with his hand on his pistol. Both men faced each other sideways in the dueling position and hesitated briefly. Tut reached for his pistol and Hickok drew his gun and steadied it on his opposite forearm. The two men fired a single shot at essentially the same time, according to many reports. Tut missed, but Wild Bill struck Tut in the left side of his body with the bullet going between his ribs. Tut called out, Boys, I'm killed ran onto the porch of the local courthouse, and then back out into the street, where he collapsed and died. The next day, a warrant was issued for Wild Bill's arrest, and two days later he was arrested. Bail was initially denied, as is common in murder cases. However, Hickok posted bail for $2,000, equivalent to about $35,000 today, after the magistrate reduced the charge from murder to manslaughter based on the circumstances. Hickok's manslaughter trial began on August 3, 1865 and lasted three days. Twenty-two witnesses from the square testified at the trial. Wild Bill's lawyer was Colonel John Phelps, former Union military governor of Arkansas. 
The prosecution was led by Major Robert Fyan, and the judge was Sempronius Boyd. The trial transcripts have been lost, but newspaper reports indicate that Hickok claimed self-defense. The most disputed fact at the trial was who shot first. Only four witnesses actually watched the fight. Two claimed both men fired, but they could not tell who drew first. One said he was standing behind Hickok, so he only saw Hickok draw, as his view of Tut was blocked. Another said Tut did not fire, but admitted noticing that Tut's gun had a discharged chamber. The other witnesses all stated that while they did not see the shooting, they heard only one shot. Judge Boyd instructed the jury to reach a conviction under the law, but also said they could apply the unwritten law involving a fair fight and acquit him. Despite Hickok's claim of self-defense being technically invalid under the state law pertaining to mutual combat, since he had come to the square armed and expecting to fight, the jury decided that he was still justified in shooting Tut. Since Tut initiated the fight by taking Wild Bill's watch, and the first to display overt aggression, and since two witnesses indicated that Tut was the first to reach for his pistol, the unwritten law dictated that Hickok was justified and absolved of guilt. In fact, Wild Bill was seen as being honorable for giving Tut several chances to avoid the conflict instead of shooting him the moment he felt he was shown disrespect. Wild Bill was acquitted on August 6, 1865, after the jury deliberated for about an hour before reaching a verdict of not guilty. A prominent Springfield attorney gave a speech to the crowd from the balcony of the courthouse, denouncing the verdict as against the evidence and all decency, and there was talk of lynching Wild Bill. The verdict was actually well in keeping with the law at the time, as stated by a modern historian. He said that nothing better describes the times than the feud between Wild Bill and Davis Tutt. Several weeks after the gunfight, on September 13, 1865, Colonel George Nichols, a writer for Harper's Magazine, sought out Wild Bill and began the interviews that would eventually turn the unknown gunfighter into one of the great legends of the Old West. Here's my take on the shootout between Wild Bill and Davis Tutt. This is a lot more civil than what we're seeing today. July 23, 1943. The Rayleigh Bath Chair murder occurred in Essex, England. The victim was Archibald Brown, age 47. He and his wife, Doris Brown, lived in London Hill, Rayleigh, Essex, and had two sons, Eric and Colin. Due to a motorcycle accident, Archibald Brown lost the use of his legs at the age of 24, and thereafter required the use of a bath chair and was cared for by three nurses. At 1.45 p.m. on Friday, July 23, in 1943, Nurse Doris Mitchell went to the air raid shelter where Brown's bath chair was kept. She found that the door was locked from the inside, and upon returning with Mrs. Brown, they saw Eric Brown coming out. Eric, who was 19 at the time, seemed irritated and evasive. Both women took the wheelchair to the house and helped Archibald get in. 
He was dressed in pajamas and a dressing gown and was covered with a plaid traveling rug. Doris Mitchell took Archibald Brown out of the house and after walking for about a mile, Brown shifted his weight, feeling around for a cigarette in his pocket. Mitchell stopped and lit the cigarette for Archibald and then returned to the back of the chair and continued to push him forward. Within a few more paces, there was a violent explosion. Brown and his bath chair had completely disappeared. The police found portions of his body at the side of the road and in nearby trees and gardens. Doris Mitchell sustained serious leg injuries as well. Experts found the cause to be a British Hawkins grenade, a type of anti-tank mine that is detonated when an acid-filled glass is broken. The device had been placed under the bath chair's cushion. Doris Brown was interviewed at length at Rayleigh Police Station. It emerged that although Archibald Brown had been disabled and unable to walk, he still harshly ruled his wife and son Eric. His wife was not allowed to visit her mother in nearby Rockford, and Archibald Brown would constantly ring a bell to get his wife's attention, even if he believed that just a single flower was out of place in a vase. Eric Brown was constantly beaten and humiliated. The blame fell on Eric Brown. He had previously attended lectures on the same mine used in the murder, and, having joined the British Army some years before, had access to a weapons store in a nearby town. Eric Brown was tried at the Shire Hall and declared insane. He was released in 1975. Here's my take on the Rayleigh bath chair murder. It sounds like Archibald was an asshole. I'm not saying he deserved to be blown into little fucking bits, but be good to people. That's the lesson here, right? Don't be a piece of shit. Don't. Beat your kids, don't beat your wife, be a good father, be a good husband, right? And now for a few events that deserve less attention. I don't give a shit. July 19th. 1969, U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy crashes his car into a tidal pond at Chappaquiddick Island, killing his passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny. You remember when that fat piece of shit killed that poor girl? Wrecked his car, drunk as fuck, and could have easily saved her but just went home? That poor girl was submerged underwater for like an hour, breathing through an air pocket, and he just let her die. He continued his bullshit job as senator and didn't get in any trouble at all. This actually deserves more attention. There are so many pieces of shit in our government just like him. July 19th, 1848. A two-day women's rights convention opens in Seneca Falls, New York. If you listen to this podcast, you are probably aware that I shit all over feminists and their stupid fucking parades. Imagine how annoying and unproductive that convention must have been. July 21st, 1973. In Lillehammer, Norway, Mossad agents kill a waiter whom they mistakenly thought was involved in the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre. Wait. 
What? This needs more attention. They accidentally killed a fucking waiter? I'm sorry. Not less attention, more attention. That's a pretty big oversight. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you everybody for tuning in. And I will see you next time.